Good morning, everyone. Shortly before his death, Jesus prayed for the believers. And you can find his prayer recorded in John's Gospel in chapter 17. And a large part of that prayer is devoted to the unity of the believers. So listen with me as we eavesdrop a little bit on some of that prayer of Jesus from John 17, verses 20 to 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prayed for unity amongst the believers because their unity would be a sign for the world. Their unity would show the world of the Father's love. Their unity would show the world that the Father had sent a saviour into the world. And here in Ephesians, as we've already seen in chapter 3, verses 6 and 10, that through Christ, Jews and Gentiles would be one new body, and that body would be the church. And they would be joint heirs and they would be sharers together in the promise, God's intention being that through the church, through this united body, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. Paul preached it, Jesus prayed about it, and both of them understood how critical unity would be to the church itself and to the message that the church would portray. So this morning as we move into chapter 4 of uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, our journey continues as Paul is about to spell out what sort of church that will look like, what sort of church will make known this manifold wisdom of God that he's been talking about. What should we expect to see in a church like that? And he begins with unity. And I don't think there's any accident there. Let's have a look at what he has to say. We're reading today from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, if you want to follow along. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit, in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Chapter 4 that we've just read begins, I therefore, or in the NIV, the word then is used. The effect is to link all that has gone before in chapters 1 to 3 with what is now about to be taught. Because you have been chosen to be holy and blameless. Because you are adopted as sons through Christ. Because you're redeemed through his blood. Because you are forgiven. Because you are blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Because you are saved by grace. Because you have been made joint heirs together with Israel. Because you are members together in one body. Because you are sharers in the promise of Jesus Christ, because you are the church and because the church is the means by which God will make known his manifold wisdom, because of all of this, therefore, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Worthy of the calling that you have received. What does that mean? Well, worthy is the English translation of the Greek word axios. And it's used to refer to weights, you know, like an old fashioned balance, a set of scales. The weight of one thing balancing the weight of the other. And Paul is calling his readers to consider all of those things that God has done for us, all of those things that he spelled out in the first three chapters and weigh them up as if they were one side of the scale. And then he calls us to consider the other side, to consider how we are living. Does the way that we're living here reflect all of these things that God has done for us? And he's not saying that we have to work hard so that we can try and correct the balance or so that we can attain these things, even if things are grossly out of balance on that scale, all of the things mentioned in chapters 1 to 3 still stand for believers. So our behaviour is not about earning those things, but it is in response to them. When we weigh up everything that God has done for us, this is how we'll want to live in response to God's goodness. We'll want to live in a way that shines forth his goodness to us. 
And how do we do that? Paul begins with four essential character traits that we all must work at if there's to be unity among us. And these are not easy character traits. Number one, humility. Perhaps this one's the most difficult because it runs countercultural to the way that society operates today. Humility is not really something that is praised in our society. Humble people recognise that the worth of a person with all of their strengths and all of their weaknesses is found in their intrinsic value as a human being. Humble Christians recognise that each one is made in the image of Christ. And for this reason, humble Christians seek or should seek to elevate others above themselves. Pride is the opposite of humility. Pride brings division, but with humility comes unity, says Paul. Number two, gentleness. Gentleness is one that we're probably quite familiar with. We know what it means, but it's hard to translate what it means to actually playing it out in our lives. Gentleness speaks of a way of being that is not harsh. A gentle person is kind and tender. They speak and act with love and concern for others. They're compassionate and considerate. And in the Old Testament, the imagery that's used is of waters gently running in a stream or of the shepherd looking after the sheep. In the New Testament, we have imagery uh, like a mother caring for young children. And Jesus himself is described as gentle and humble in heart. Rather than being a sign of weakness, exercising gentleness in many situations actually requires enormous restraint and great personal strength of character. And here the Apostle Paul urges that gentleness is a gateway to unity. Number three, patience. Biblical patience is the capacity to willingly tolerate delay or trouble or suffering without becoming angry or upset. And in our fast-moving world, patience is often hard to come by. I think would confess to becoming upset when we're waiting for a long time at the traffic lights. We could confess to becoming impatient, being cooped up at home in this current lockdown. Simple things make us impatient. We rush through an amber light so that we don't have to wait at the red. The kettle takes too long to boil. The television takes too long to start up. We want two second noodles, not two minute noodles. I can remember when I had a young baby who used to cry all the time. The 30 seconds that it took the microwave to heat up that bottle seemed like an eternity. It wasn't, but it just felt like it. Biblical patience is a quality of self-restraint that has its basis in dependence on God and acceptance of his will in our lives. As with gentleness, patience is not a passive trait. It is a determination of the will, not simply something that comes out of necessity. A patient person can deal with others without becoming easily angered. 
as we read in Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. Number four, Paul says, is bearing with one another in love. To bear with one another in love is to put up with one another's strange quirks, to put up with our shortcomings and failures and character flaws. Such a person is tolerant of others and can extend mercy and grace when mercy and grace are needed. Paul says we're to do this not gritting our teeth or rolling our eyes. Our motivation is to be love. We love because Christ first loved us. Bear with one another in love, says Paul. Paul exhorts them to be eager or to make every effort, the NIV says, make every effort to pursue unity. And the source of that unity comes, as chapter 2, verses 14 to 22 tell us, through the death of Christ, which destroyed that dividing wall of hostility. This unity is therefore to be a defining mark of all who believe. And so it is our collective responsibility as Christians to let nothing disturb that hard-won unity because it is our testimony to a watching world. Well, it's all very well to throw a group of diverse people together and tell them they must do everything possible to be unified. But without some points of agreement between them, that is likely to be an exercise in frustration. And Paul here goes ahead to list seven things that all believers have in common upon which our unity can be founded. And as an aside, I don't think there's any accident there in the number seven being chosen. The number seven is used right throughout the Bible to symbolise completeness and perfection. And so I think maybe that's something of what Paul had in mind here with this group of seven ones. He says there is one body. There's no longer Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor, old and young, male and female. There's just one body. So what we see in the church should reflect that diversity because it's what God had in mind. I don't think he had in mind that young people should gather together separately to the exclusion of older people or that the church should only be full of older people. people. I don't think he imagined that Asians should be in one group and Caucasians should be in another group or that we should divide our gatherings based on those who like hymns versus those who like more contemporary music. Those are the types of lines among which the world divides itself. And if we divide ourselves that way, why should the world take any notice of us? Because we'll be known different from the world. To divide along those lines is like cutting loose a hand and setting it free to do its own thing while the rest of the body tries to function without a hand. There is one body, says Paul, and we must therefore reflect that great diversity in our gatherings together. And we must work out our differences with humility, gentleness, patience and forbearance in love. 
Each of us, he says, is indwelt equally by one spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. The one body that we're called to is unlike any other organisation because the Holy Spirit is present within each member. And it is he who calls us to one body and equips us with various spiritual gifts for the benefit of that body. It is the same spirit who calls and who equips each one. We share one hope, to be seated with Christ, reigning with him forever. The one spirit that we share is our guarantee of that hope, that one day we'll be fully transformed into Christ-likeness and share in his inheritance. There's one Lord through whom we've all been saved by grace. And he's the central focus of these seven ones. You'll notice there's three before, he's in the middle, and then there's another three. Where Christ is truly served and honoured as Lord, nothing will be allowed to come between those who have put their faith in him. We share one faith, one body of essential truths, our creator God, the Trinity, Christ and his saving work on the cross, the resurrection. We may differ in our understanding of many, many peripheral issues, but in the essential truths found in scripture, these cannot be altered. They are our foundation. We share one faith. And the outward sign of our one faith is baptism. We're all baptised into Christ. We don't follow Paul or Apollos or Glenn or Caroline or anyone else. We're baptised into Christ. Galatians 3.27. Or as Paul says in his letter to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 12.13, by one spirit we're baptised into one body. And last but definitely not least, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. All of us are made in his image, saved through faith in his Son and indwelt by his Holy Spirit. Therefore, all of us are brothers and sisters, members of one spiritual family. These seven ones that Paul has spelt out for us are the basis of our unity and they stand as much in contrast to the culture of today with its many divisions, many faiths, many ceremonies and many objects of worship as they did with the culture of Israel. There are many similarities between our culture and their culture because both are greatly divided and there are many faiths, people worship all sorts of things, they have all sorts of traditions, um, and they have many objects in their worship. Unity, however, does not mean uniformity. I can remember Pastor Bruce used to say that he and Pastor Glenn were very alike. Well, I don't know about that, but what I do know for sure is that Pastor Glenn and I are possibly as different as you might be able to get. He's Asian background, polite, considerate and tactful. I am more Irish background, more straightforward, more direct, occasionally quite blunt. He's a natural people person, 
He's completely at ease in a room full of people. And I have to work harder at that because I'm more at ease in a garden full of plants and fungi. Creative or administrative tasks tend to get delegated to me because I'm a natural organiser. But if you ask PG to prepare a health and safety manual or write your policy or put together a COVID plan, you'll start to see his eyes rolling back in his head. He's more of a big picture kind of guy and I'm more of a details kind of girl. But what we have in common are these seven ones and our common desire to live a life worthy of the calling we've received. Unity does not mean uniformity. We are not all the same. And nor did God intend that the church would ever be made up of people who are all exactly the same. Verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And Paul is not referring here to saving grace. He's using the word grace in the same way as he's used it previously in chapter 3. If you have a look back, chapter 3, verse 2, surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Or verse 7, I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. So the word grace here is used more in the sense of the privilege of a special calling. It's used in the sense of being called into God's service. It's an enabling grace which equips each one for their particular role in the body of Christ according to the gifts apportioned by Christ himself. And Paul explains how this works by drawing on the imagery found in Psalm 68, verse 18. Now in that psalm, David recounts the Lord redeeming his people out of slavery in Egypt during the Exodus, ultimately to choose Mount Zion as the seat of his rule, ascending to his throne, establishing his kingdom there through King David and receiving gifts from men which were the spoils from the nations that they had conquered. And Paul takes that psalm and he applies it to the Messiah descending to earth, redeeming his people and ascending to heaven in victory. When he ascended, he led a captive, a host of captives, meaning, as he's already explained in chapter 2, verse 6, believers are raised with Christ and seated with him in the heavenly realms. And it is to these that he gives gifts. Now, in its original context, the psalm speaks only of God receiving the spoils from men. But here, Paul, recognising that the psalm also pointed towards Christ, he takes that imagery one step further to speak of the conquering king distributing the spoils back to those in his kingdom in the form of spiritual gifts given to every believer for the benefit of the body of Christ. And four such gifts are mentioned here in this letter to the Ephesians. But there are some 20 of these gifts named across five New Testament passages. Paul's focus here is very narrow because he speaks only of those gifts 
which prepare God's people for the work of ministry or service, as some versions use. He mentions the apostles appointed by Christ as his witnesses and empowered by his spirit to establish and build up the early church and prepare a written record of the things that they had witnessed. He mentions the prophets who were for the people the very word of God before the scriptures had even been compiled. He talks about evangelists who are gifted with the ability to effectively communicate the gospel and bring people to faith. And he mentions pastor teachers who nurture that faith, shepherding and teaching the flock. These four, the apostles, prophets, evangelists and pastor teachers were given by Jesus to prepare God's people for the work of ministry. They were not given to the church to do all of the work of ministry, but to prepare God's people for the work of ministry. Paul is very clear here that ministry is everyone's responsibility and there should be no spectators because to each one of us grace has been given as Christ has apportioned it. No one missed out. All have been given gifts and therefore each have a unique role to play. Imagine an orchestra where most of the musicians just want to sit and watch the conductor. Perhaps some of them didn't feel skilled enough yet to play. Perhaps some of them weren't quite ready to play in front of a big audience. Perhaps some of them were too nervous to play. Maybe some of them knew that they hadn't actually put in the necessary time in preparation. Some might have been scared that they might make a mistake. And some of them just preferred to sit and listen to others. It would be a disaster. It wouldn't matter how well the ones who did play played their parts because an orchestra by definition is a group of instrumentalists. Usually it combines string and woodwind and brass and percussion. And it sounds magnificent when everyone plays their part. But if the woodwind section decide that they're not participating, then their unique contribution, their unique sound is lost. And it can't be replaced by the other instruments in the other sections. You can't make a flute sound with a cello. Likewise, if someone in the percussion section decides that they are going to play, but they're going to do their own thing, and they're going to play to a different beat, it won't be long before the whole performance descends into chaos. Each one must not only play, but they must play together. They must play their own unique and essential part. An admirer is once said to have asked conductor Leonard Bernstein, the late conductor of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, what was the hardest instrument to play? And his reply came quickly with both wisdom and wit. He said, second fiddle, without hesitation. I can always get plenty of first violinists, he said, but to find one who will play second fiddle with the same enthusiasm or second French horn or second flute, now that is a problem. 
And yet if no one plays second, there is no harmony. In an orchestra, there is no place for spectators. Certainly there are plenty of spectators, but they're not part of the orchestra. They're outside of it. They're in the audience watching. And likewise with the church, there are many spectators, but they're not inside. They're outside watching, or at least they should be. And what they see when they look at us will be awful if some of us refuse to use the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of the church, or if some of us decide to go it alone and do our own thing, or if there's disunity among us, what sort of message would that send to the watching world about the wisdom of God? You get some sort of sense for the great risk that God has taken with us and the very great responsibility that we have in being tasked to display his manifold wisdom. Verse 12 says that these apostles, prophets, evangelists and the pastor teachers prepare God's people for ministry. And this ministry of all God's people builds up the body of Christ, resulting in unity, in unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. It results in maturity and it results in Christ-likeness. What will that look like? Well, such a church, says Paul, will be steadfast. They won't be tossed about and pulled in every direction by false teachers and passing fads. Instead, its members will speak the truth lovingly and they will be becoming more and more like Christ. When this happens, when all the parts of the body do their part, they are like the 100 pianos described by Tozer in his book, The Pursuit of God. 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord. Although each one is playing separately, not by being tuned to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. Unity is essential to our Christian witness and we must make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bonds of peace. But ultimately that will be easier said than done unless each one individually bows to the head, which is Christ. Each one in submission to Christ, willingly using in love the gifts that they have been given for the sake of others. That, says Paul, is how the church grows. Church growth is not an individual pursuit. It is a team game. There isn't one of us who has individually been gifted by God everything that we need to grow into maturity except in community. God has placed us in community for a reason 
And it is tragic when Christians are deceived into believing that they can go it alone. When each one uses their gifts in ministry for the benefit of others under the leadership of Christ, whilst maintaining unity, then we will all grow in maturity and become the type of community that God wants us to be, the type of church that showcases his wisdom in the spiritual realms. This passage very clearly teaches that each one of us, each one has a role to play in ministry and that each one is responsible to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. So my question for each of us this morning is very simple. Am I? Am I playing my part in ministry? Or am I holding back and holding out on my church family? Am I a contributor or a consumer? Or am I just a spectator? Am I making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit? Am I humble and gentle? Am I patient and willing to bear with others in love? Do I take offence easily? Am I prone to gossip? Do I find it hard to admit when I've been wrong or difficult to see another person's point of view? Is there anyone that I go out of my way to avoid within the church? If the Holy Spirit has been prompting you this morning, don't ignore him. For just as the orchestra is incomplete without every musician playing their part in tune to the best of their ability, so too will the church be incomplete without each one ministering together in unity according to the gifts that they've been given. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to be that kind of church that you had in mind to demonstrate your wisdom. Forgive us, Lord, when we have taken our eyes off the big things, the seven ones listed in this passage of scripture that unite us and have allowed the small things to come between us. Forgive us when our attitude has not been one of humility, gentleness, patience and forbearance in love and when we have not done everything possible to keep the unity of the spirit. Forgive us, Lord, for any excuses we may have offered for not getting involved in ministry. Show me the things in me which I need to work on in this coming week so that together we can be the kind of church that you had in mind. Amen. Well, as we close this morning, I want to remind you again to um, log on tonight and join us for a little bit of fun and uh, a change from lockdown and an opportunity to see one another's faces again, which we haven't had for a little while. Let me bless you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen. We're going to close our time together this morning reflecting on that benediction in song. And if we were together, I would ask you to 
sing it to one another as a way of affirming our unity, but we're not together. So instead, what I want you to do this morning as this song plays is to pray a blessing over those of our number who might particularly need to feel God's blessing upon them this week. So as the song plays, allow the faces of those that you know to scroll through your mind. Think of those who are perhaps alone and isolated. Think of those who are going through health or financial or family struggles. And especially think of any who perhaps you find difficult to deal with and might rather avoid. Pray God's blessing on them because they are a child of God and your brother and sister in Christ. And if you're not a part of Pathway on and on normal gatherings, then we pray this blessing over you today.
His favor be upon you and a thousand generations in your family and your children and their children and their children. May His favor be upon you and a thousand generations in your family and your children and their children and their children. May His favor. Upon you and a thousand generations, and your family and your children.